Good afternoon. I'm Kerry Brower, the Acting Director and Chief Curator here at the Hirshhorn. I invite you to this lecture today. I'm very happy you could make it to this. It was a little hard to get down to the mall today with uh, the Cherry Blossom Festival and um, everything else that's going on in Washington uh, this weekend. So uh, I appreciate uh, you turning out uh, for this and, and uh, coming down. Um, this is a lecture that is really important to the exhibition that uh, we organized that's on the second floor of the museum right now called The Cinema Effect, Illusion, Reality, and the Moving Image. And it's a lecture which uh, helps us in a way to extend the exhibition beyond uh, what we could really do in the show itself. We are really grateful to have with us today the architectural historian Dietrich Neumann, who will add a great deal, I think, to the discussion of the way the world has become uh, much more cinematic, far beyond what we could do um, in the exhibition uh, itself. One of the issues that we were very interested in in this show, uh, my co-curator Kelly Gordon uh, and myself, um, is, the, is the idea that the world today, the cinema isn't confined to just a movie theater. You don't go to the movie theater and enter this other realm as you used to, the movie palace in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s. Today, the cinema is really everywhere. It's on television. It's uh, even on your uh, cell phone. It can be downloaded. It's on your computer. But beyond that, it's, it's outside. It's in the city itself. It's a city that's now illuminated. It's a city that's now uh, has projections onto buildings and giant LED screens. It's a, uh, a city that's come alive and that is kind of liquid. And of course, that was a difficult thing to attempt to put into the exhibition. So we didn't really try to do that too much, although we did include a piece by the artist Chio Aoshima, uh, which is called City Glow, which was meant to give a little bit of a, a hint at that. So we wanted to actually invite Dietrich to come today to actually talk about this issue and the history of it. And so we're very happy that he could be here. And uh, this lecture is done uh, in collaboration with the National Building uh, Museum uh, just across the way here. And we're very grateful to them for uh, cooperating on, on this uh, lecture. Uh, we have with us today, as I mentioned, the architectural historian Dietrich uh, Neumann, and he'll explore this phenomenon with us. And I just want to thank, uh, to begin with, uh, a few people who helped make this uh, lecture possible. Um, first of all, the executive director of the National Building Museum, uh, Chase Rind, uh, who's here with us today, and I thank him uh, for coming, and Paul Kilmer from over at that museum. Uh, thanks for his help as well. I also wanted to thank Melina Kalinowska, who runs uh, these lectures for us, uh, along with a number of her staff members who are terrific, and Kelly Gordon, who actually, uh, my co-curator on the show, who uh, drew my attention to Dietrich's work, and uh, I was very grateful for that, and uh, his uh, work has actually uh, deeply influenced our thinking about uh, the exhibition. Uh, Dietrich was born in Göttingen, uh, Germany, and trained as an architect at the Architecture and Technical uh, University in Munich, uh, Germany, and also in London at the Architectural uh, Association and School um, of Architecture. Uh, he has a PhD in architectural history from the University in Munich, and he's also a professor for the history of modern architecture at Brown University, and has been there, I think, since uh, around 1989 or so. He's published uh, a number of books, uh, including one on the German skyscraper, uh, and also uh, a book that became an exhibition called Film Architecture, Set Design from Metropolis to Blade Runner, uh, which was done in 1996, which I actually saw an exhibition version of that at the Film Academy uh, in Los Angeles, and I think it was also at a number of other uh, institutions. So uh, Dietrich's been very involved with both exhibitions and in uh, the creation of, of books. Um, the book that influenced us for this exhibition is called Architecture of the Night, uh, the Illuminated Building, and uh, this is uh, a discussion which uh, he will pursue today about the history uh, of the Illuminated Building and, and what's happened to that. He's been um, frequently published uh, in other areas and contributed to numerous books and journals and curated several other exhibitions, including uh, Windshield, Richard Neutra's House for the John Nicholas Brown Family, which he did for the Sackler Museum at Harvard University. University. 
Uh, Dietrich is the vice president of the Society of Architectural Historians and the Vincent Scully Visiting Professor of Architectural History at Yale School of Architecture. Um, before I welcome Dietrich up, I'd just like to invite uh, Chase Rind, uh, again, the director of the National Building Museum, to come up uh, and say a few words. So thank you for coming today. Thank you, Carrie. Uh, we are uh, delighted to be collaborating with the Hirshhorn on today's program, and we look forward to many more in the future. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar with the National Building Museum across the way in Judiciary Square, we are a unique institution in this country. We're dedicated to educating the public about the world that we build for ourselves. And through our exhibitions and educational programs, we showcase achievements in architecture, landscape architecture, urban planning, engineering, construction, and design. And if I may just put in a plug for our next major exhibition, early next month we are opening a significant retrospective exhibition of Eero Saarinen's work, who's famed, of course, for our very own Dulles Airport, as well as uh, a lot of other iconic buildings in this country. Um, and in that exhibition, as in most of our exhibitions, we often utilize the medium of film to tell our stories. And clearly, many connections can be made between architecture and film. Certainly, in the realm of film production, there is not only the obvious creation of physical sets and environments for a film, but also the reciprocal activation of these sets on screen. With architecture, um, elements of film narrative and composition are echoed in how a person experiences moving through a building. Fundamental to both of these art forms, film and architecture, and to the powerful experiences that they engender uh, is light, whether it be through the projection of a single image uh, or the strategic placement of natural or artificial light, uh, light sources in a home or a cityscape, thinking of New York in the 30s or Las Vegas today, probably we think of not only the architecture, but the, uh, the nightscapes as well, the night views. As uh, Dietrich Neumann uh, outlines in his book, uh, the history of architectural lighting is an important but largely overlooked story, um, ephemeral and immaterial, but capable of creating powerful visual impressions. Light is increasingly used to shape the built environment in surprising ways not unlike the dreamlike projections found in the absolutely amazing exhibition upstairs. If you haven't seen it yet, go immediately after this program. It's just an, a terrific show. So I look forward now to hearing more about this from Dietrich Neumann. Dietrich, thank you. to this microphone so I can move around a little bit more. I'm very happy to be here and I wanted to thank you all for coming obviously on such a beautiful day where you know it might be nicer to be outside of course but uh, I uh, wanted to thank uh, Milena Kalinowska and of course Carrie Brower for uh, inviting me and for the kind introduction that you uh, just gave us and uh, I believe I met Kelly Gordon at uh, the exhibition that I organized in Rotterdam and we talked a little bit about the uh, um, common interest in this question of light and architecture and of course I also wanted to uh, thank uh, uh, um, uh, Chase uh, Rin for his uh, kind words and introduction and uh, um, I've always loved the Building Museum, I've been there many times and I think it's a fantastic institution and uh, has really moved the field of architectural history and the debate in our field forward. What I wanted to do, as you've heard, this sort of question of light and architecture has interested me for quite some time and, and uh, I wanted to, in conjunction with this really wonderful exhibition upstairs, I wanted to uh, pursue today this question of the relationship of light, advertising and the moving image with architecture because I believe that we are at a moment where many architects and lighting designers um, and critics realize that this relationship is crucial in a way and can help us design better architecture. If we understand what we can do with light and with advertisements, if we learn how to integrate 
the imagery that is uh, um, uh, surrounding us, and that is, of course, a very important part of uh, um, uh, advertising products into architecture, perhaps a better architecture can even evolve. So it's a very interesting uh, question, I believe. And I wanted to um, uh, show you that this is really a discourse that is emerging right now, and I think uh, quite interesting if we look at what Robert Campbell, who is the uh, critic of the Boston Globe, for instance, uh, writes here in, in 2006, he is actually wondering, looking at Times Square and at other big uh, media installations, he is actually wondering, he says, will we even know anymore when we are in the real world and when we are in a media simulation? Because, as he points out, the entire facade of a building can be turned into a digital screen from sidewalk all the way to roof and it can contain changing images. And we don't know if that's a billboard, is it still architecture? Can we actually uh, use that? And obviously it needs a bit of a, a theoretical underpinning and we need to know if this uh, is going to change our urban environment in a significant way. I think Carrie has actually addressed this question in the introduction to the wonderful catalog and has talked about this uh, Alphaville effect of being transported into a, into a different environment. I had to think of that. And his colleague William Mitchell, who is a professor at MIT, uh, asked a very similar question. If we have, in fact, imagery, moving imagery on the facade of a building, um, what kind of influence does that have on a building? And will the image almost sort of destroy the facade? Will it uh, actually uh, uh, change the way we understand the architecture? He says, does the image um, uh, a building carries on its outside and is broadcasting, does this image simply swallow the building? Or do we judge the building by the contents of its display or the mechanism, the architecture that houses it? All of these are, I think, quite interesting questions. And I want to take you on a, a brief historical uh, journey at first and then go back to the present and look at a few experiments that are being done today to perhaps reconsider architecture and its relationship with the moving image. So let me take you to Times Square for a moment and back to the year 1913. And there's a visitor from uh, France, Pierre Louty, here in this wonderful portrait by uh, Rousseau. Um, and he is in Times Square and he describes it quite beautifully and he says, Everywhere, multicolored lights sparkle, forming letters and then dissolving them again. But it is up in the air that one chiefly gazes, despite all the noise that goes on below. For up there, on the tops of the buildings, are signs that move, operated by ingenious mechanisms, visions that dance. Among these is a Roman chariot race in which gigantic horses are furiously swinging their hoofs of fire. A thread manufacturer shows an enormous yellow cat unwinding a reel of red fire and winding itself up in the cotton. And then he says, I'm immediately amused and even on the verge of admiration. He's French, right? He didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to admit that he was, of course, totally blown away by the whole spectacle. And, and so I, I uh, looked for a long time. I wanted to see what was this kitten about, right? And I finally found some photographs. Uh, as you can see here, this Corticelli kitten, uh, um, uh, of course, in these photographs, we don't see that this was, in a way, an early form of public cinema, because you had sort of sequences of light bulbs going on and off, giving us the impression that this little cat was actually moving and winding himself, itself up in the thread. As we heard, here's another photograph of this Corticelli uh, kitten. I found an a, um, image, that, a short film clip that I want to show you from an early Hitchcock film that gives us a little bit of an idea of what these moving images in public spaces actually looked like. And this is from a film called Blackmail, very good early Hitchcock, 1928. This young woman, Annie Ondra, has just killed a man who uh, tried to get too close to her and they had had something to drink and she's out there walking the streets and uh, looking at the advertising and suddenly sort of has this little vision of um, uh, sort of a changing meaning there. But these moving letters, of course, are indeed uh, uh, sort of an early form of uh, public moving imagery that goes back to those years around 1913 and it's very rare to find them actually uh, captured in their motion in a film which is why I brought this in. But I want to move on of course a few years later Times Square already looks like this and uh, in fact there is an abundance of uh, luminous advertising everywhere and of course not just on Times Square but up and down Fifth Avenue, Broadway and so on and um, um, we'll soon sense that 
the abundance of these luminous adver advertisements is in fact something that uh, people also begin to look at critically, that perhaps it is a sort of too stark onslaught of uh, capitalism onto the public realm, and that is something perhaps one should rein in and hold back, and that perhaps it is also something that can be seen symbolically standing for the dangers of the big city. I wonder, actually, if I may interrupt one last time, if we could uh, uh, take down the sound just a little bit, because I hear sort of my echo, and I think we don't need quite as uh, uh, loud a sound. Thank you very much. So uh, if we look at Times Square now a few years later, 1927, and I'm sort of moving us uh, uh, swiftly through a few decisive steps in the history of uh, uh, luminous advertising, and we look at a film such as this one here, the famous sunrise uh, that was uh, shown, in fact, in the Roxy movie theater on Times Square, and this is here the interior actually of the Roxy, great ornament in this sort of fake Rococo style, and it's this dramatic story unfolding here in this movie theater of this uh, young woman who seduces a peasant in on her country vacation and tells him, why don't you kill your wife and come with me to the city? And uh, the way she describes the city in this film is, of course, through luminous advertising, through illuminated buildings, through moving lights and imagery, so suddenly all of this has adopted a somewhat sinister meaning if you uh, uh, um, compare this. And that's a very important uh, moment in the history of an understanding of this uh, role of uh, the public reaction to luminous advertising. Uh, and this is just one of many examples one could find at the time. In fact, the New York Times suddenly in the mid-1920s is full of articles that talk about the dangers of too much advertising and the need, in fact, to ban the white lights on Fifth Avenue to start an anti-billboard uh, campaign. The fact that billboards are unsightly, offenses to the eye, uh, and uh, there is a, um, a real sort of danger to the public realm, they feel, through these white lights and the electric signs. One of the reasons was, of course, that if you looked at uh, uh, those, uh, uh, you know, Times Square at night, it was, of course, absolutely magical and, and beautiful. But during daytime, you would, uh, in fact, have these ugly scaffoldings that would carry those signs. And people felt they were marring the architecture. And we still have those, of course, in our city. So that was one of the reasons why they didn't want them, because the daytime appearance of the architecture, of the advertising on the architecture, in addition to the architecture, was not something that people enjoyed very much. And so there the debate begins. You know, what is this relationship between advertising and architecture? Can we re regulate that? Can we do something about it? And so suddenly people feel what is happening there in Times Square is actually rather vulgar and we have to think about better ways of advertising. And this is where a man comes into the picture. His name is William Wrigley. And William Wrigley um, made an enormous fortune. He was an advertising genius. He made an enormous fortune, as you all know, uh, selling a product that no one knew that they needed. And uh, it, it was, uh, uh, as you can see here, Wrigley's chewing gum. And he had a uh, wonderful, of course, uh, moving advertisement, as you can see here in Times Square, uh, with lights going on and off and things uh, happening and so on. But he realized he didn't want to uh, continue in this vein and, and picked up the idea that this was perhaps a rather vulgar thing to do and had a brilliant, brilliant idea for his new headquarters in Chicago, which was built in 1921 by Graham Anderson Probst and White. And William Wrigley himself worked with lighting designers because he had the idea of, instead of calling out Wrigley's spearmint and so on, doing something entirely different. He decided to light the entire facade of the Wrigley building and plan for this lighting from the beginning because the facade is covered in white terracotta in such a way that it actually goes from a sort of beige color to bright white because he knew the floodlights shining against the facade, of course, would be weaker at the top than at the bottom, so that is equaled out by the color of the terracotta chosen. So the building is actually already designed with its nocturnal appearance in mind, and it became the brightest spot in the United States. This image of that brightly lit white facade went around the world. You could find that in, in small German newspapers as this amazing uh, uh, building. and Everybody knew this is the Wrigley building. And it was so, so well done that he didn't have, actually have to uh, put a sign up. It doesn't even say Wrigley anywhere. But everybody knew what it was. And it was just achieved without words through this sort of abstract gesture of lighting the building. And this move was brilliant. William Wrigley really knew what to do. He basically adopted a discourse that had developed before. It was a discourse about lighting architecture at night that had evolved at world's fairs 
uh, sort of somewhat uh, different and somewhat distinctly removed from the um, uh, realm of uh, commercial uh, advertising. And if we just do a very quick excursion, we'll see that, for instance, in Paris at the World's Fair in 1889, the Eiffel Tower had been lit with a newly um, um, developed technology of uh, arc lamps, as you can see here, shining down onto different buildings uh, on the exhibition grounds, and the tower itself had been lit with all the forms of light available with, in fact, magnesium fires. You see the smoke coming out here with gas lamps, with little light bulbs uh, in certain areas. And it demonstrated, in a way, the capacities of light available at that moment. And, of course, immediately those World's Fairs were always uh, uh, sort of testing grounds for new technologies, and every country wanted to outdo the last uh, um, uh, um, location of the World's Fair. So, so Chicago comes along in 1893, four years later, and already there's much more light in the buildings, integrated into the fountains, underwater, in the arches, in different colors. Quite a spectacle. We have wonderful descriptions of how people coming to this fair from the countryside in the uh, wide plains of Illinois and fainting at the sight of all this light because they'd never seen anything like it. But if we move on and look at Paris in 1900, for instance, uh, we have wonderful descriptions of how the lighting changed the nature of architecture. And in fact, uh, uh, one German art historian whom I greatly admired, he walked across the exhibition grounds at night that were even more illuminated than Chicago 1893. And he says, today already we can dream ourselves into the future if we wander through the exhibition grounds by night. Then the little putty and cornices, all the small and small-minded embellishments vanish ghost-like in the dark. What remains are the large outlines, the enormous masses of this creation. All by itself, the night presents what we expect from the new architecture, concentration and greatness. I love this quote. I love that quote because uh, it, first of all, suggests that the nocturnal view, the illumination of architecture at night, can give us an idea of what it is going to look like in the future. And I'll come back to that point at the end a little bit. And of course, it talks about this new architecture and describes it as an architecture of concentration and greatness, which indeed was sort of the credo of modern architecture. And I think this building is one of concentration and greatness and great simplicity in its outer forms. That was sort of the vision of modern architecture that was born in the nocturnal uh, impression uh, at the turn of the century and pronounced and then had an enormous success through the 20th century. So immediately afterwards, Buffalo again trying to outdo Paris, of course, a year later, 1901, with wonderful light bulbs in the cornices of these uh, buildings and uh, drawing more and more energy than the one before. And so we see that very clearly the buildings are, in fact, designed more and more with the lighting um, uh, in mind. And so the architecture begins to change and then there's a very quick uh, development uh, uh, with the arrival of floodlighting, especially at this San Francisco exhibition, Panama Pacific exposition that celebrated both the opening of the Panama Canal that uh, uh, American politics was very much involved in, of course, and the rebirth of San Francisco after the uh, terrible earthquake and fire a few years before. And now strong searchlights were directed against the facades of the buildings. Here's where the idea is really born to use this as a beautifying element. And the facades of the buildings uh, acted as reflectors. So one went beyond the lines of little light bulbs into something new. And the lighting designer, the first really uh, a man who could claim this title, a man called Walter Darcy Ryan, working for General Electric, uh, invented this great uh, um, uh, aurora borealis that he called the scintillator, great term, you know, the scintillator up here in the night sky. And of course, the technology was not developed to please the visitors at World's Fairs. It was, of course, military technology that had moved the design of these strong floodlights forward. And you see here uh, a German um, um, uh, marine warfare in the First World War, which, of course, had just begun 1914. And, and the United States would then uh, um, join in a, a year later. And of course, the anticipation of aerial warfare. That was, those were the driving forces, of course, for this technology to move forward. But William Wrigley used it for the first time in the illumination of this building with this uh, amazingly clever uh, move of uh, illuminating the facade and having no writing whatsoever, a nonverbal abstract art that is used here for selling a product. A year later, 1922, a huge uh, uh, competition is held and another office building is to be built 
on this new part of Chicago on, on, on Michigan Avenue just across the river. And of course, this building across the street is the new headquarters for the Chicago Tribune uh, newspaper company. And it was quite a tall order to build a building across from this famous Wrigley building that had been published all around the world already with its nighttime view. And so the winner of this competition, a man called Raymond Hood, uh, together with John Mead Howells, he knew that he had to somehow respond to the building across the street. He couldn't just design something uh, freely. He had to respond, and so he designed a Gothic structure instead of a classical structure. This is sort of loosely based on the on Reims Cathedral. Of course, those so-called flying buttresses up there have no structural function, right? They're a steel frame and not really necessary. But for me, I think the most important uh, thing is that he, in his uh, description of the building, I think that helped him win the competition, he said, I can do something with light that will, in fact, match or outdo what is happening across the street at the Wrigley Building. And I thought that was quite a strong statement because, you know, this was clearly recognized as the greatest uh, lighting achievement um, ever. And he says we can really um, um, outdo this uh, uh, building uh, with, uh, I have great ideas for different uh, lighting arrangements. And he says, actually, there lies in the future development even more fantastic than anything that has ever been accomplished on the stage. And he would say, the possibilities of night lighting have barely been touched. There was a little bit of an insult, of course, to the Wrigley building across the street, right? Have barely been touched, and here was the brightest building in the, on the planet. And then he goes on and talks about that in the future there is a development even more fantastic than anything that has ever been accomplished on the stage. And the stage was really important for him. He said, we can learn from theater. We will create theaters in the air. And he says, eventually the night lighting of buildings is going to be studied exactly as Gordon Craig and Norman Bel Geddes have studied stage lighting, both really famous, important uh, stage lighting designers. And so he hired a man whom he got straight from Broadway, this lighting designer here, Bessie Jones. This is. Uh, Raymond Hood up there, who went to Brown University, I should uh, mention, and then to MIT and uh, the Ecole de Beaux-Arts and so on. But uh, uh, he hired Bessie Jones from Broadway, and they started experimenting with uh, colored lights at the top uh, of the building, and uh, in fact made great plans of what they wanted to achieve up there with changing colors, and they actually um, uh, describe here uh, that they uh, went all out and said the whole effect will be that of Walhalla burning in the skies, bringing to mind perhaps the finale of the Götterdämmerung. With manual control, smoke boxes added, and mortars firing bombs from the tank roof, a most gorgeous display can be produced. So they had actually smoke up there in colors. It was quite a display and uh, uh, quite, uh, quite amazing. Uh, somehow the, the uh, board of directors of the Chicago Tribune didn't fully understand why they should have a sort of Wagnerian apocalypse up there at the top of their building. So they didn't really go for it. But they uh, settled with Raymond Hood on a, on a more somber but very elegant solution that in a way plays off very well. Uh, uh, of the Wrigley building across the street. It's much more sophisticated. It's not sort of in-your-face brightness, but actually something that plays with the elements of the architecture up there. And it's very similar to what you see here in this postcard. And I want to take you to Chicago just for a second. I took this photo there just before uh, Christmas, so the lighting is a little out of season, but uh, here we go. And if we now look very carefully you see the trees there with their lighting, and uh, we can, uh, with this photo, we can sort of look um, up for a moment. And so there we see the lighting, and it's very elegant, just at the top, and it uses very carefully, of course, the uh, uh, Gothic tracery uh, to uh, sort of frame the lighting, make it more mysterious, more elegant, much more sophisticated, perhaps, than the building across the street. And of course, this dialogue between these two buildings is the most important part. So if we now Move around, I'll go slow so you don't get too seasick when I do this. And you see the Wrigley building, of course, is still standing right across. And uh, here it is, and it's brightly illuminated. Some days it's even brighter than this. I think they had this slightly toned down, but uh, still you see the big difference here. On the right is an addition that was done later to the Wrigley building. And we actually also see here the uh, light posts, and in fact, the beams of the light shooting up. You see that here. Uh, shooting up against this uh, facade and illuminating it. And we see, I think, the difference very clearly. We also, if we look further, we see what an influence this encounter had between these two buildings. This is the birth, 
the moment when architectural lighting in the United States begins. It is the dialogue between the Wrigley Building and the Chicago Tribune right here on Michigan Avenue. And of course, many others follow. If you look here in the distance, you know, this is all, I think there's sort of Christmas lighting going on here. This is all red. And then if we look around, maybe in the back here, there's modern lighting. This, you know, I took the photo and then I looked at this and I thought, this looks as if somebody's playing Tetris there or something. You see, they're, they're, they're lights going, so I don't know. what But anyway, so we'll just uh, go back to the front. But you see, I think, yeah, I have to go slow, I know. But the dialogue is really the key thing. And so at this moment, something really important had happened. And everybody understood that a revolution had begun and that architecture should be considered with the lighting in mind. And that is, of course, uh, what uh, happened in the following years. And um, um, there are wonderful descriptions of how they uh, went on and on with their um, uh, experiments. And in fact, Raymond Hood writes, we had the whole top at some point of the building waving like a tree in a strong wind with cross-lighting. The most unusual cubistic patterns were developed. Anyone who has seen the color organ, he says, that has been played in some of our concert halls can realize that the illumination of today is only the start of an entirely new art. And we talked about uh, the color organ uh, uh, over lunch because Carrie did this wonderful show about um, uh, visual music uh, and this uh, little-known abstract um, uh, art form of projecting color uh, to music in a sort of uh, attempt at synesthesia. And in fact, color organs were much talked about at the time, but by now are sort of widely forgotten and slowly being rediscovered. And uh, in fact, you know, just to give you an example, this, for instance, uh, is a color organ that Thomas Wilfred designed. And you have to imagine that sort of abstract lights would be projected above the orchestra. And this was actually used uh, when Alexander Scriabin's Prometheus was performed in Carnegie Hall in New York in 1915. And he had uh, composed this uh, orchestra piece uh, with the color organ in mind. And so General Electric had built this and Thomas Wilfred played it. And so the lights were projected above the orchestra. The New York Times, from where this photograph comes, uh, reported that everybody got a huge headache and uh, didn't really enjoy it that much. But anyway, so Raymond Hood went on, of course, with more lighting experiments. And uh, you see here the American radiator tower, where, of course, it made a lot of sense to have, again, experiments with uh, steam coming out at the top. This is, of course, a maker of uh, radiators, so steam and red light. There are reports that. Uh, there was a traffic jam on, on Fifth Avenue. This is uh, right behind the uh, public library on, on, in New York City and overlooking Bryant Park because people thought the building was on fire and they called the fire department. So it was just Raymond Hood and Bessie Jones uh, trying things out. But uh, it was so impressive that Georgia O'Keeffe uh, uh, painted the building with this illumination at night. Many of you know this wonderful painting, American Radiator at Night, where you see the illumination uh, that Raymond Hood created and George O'Keefe also showed great floodlights here and, and elements and did something wonderful. Of course, she knew that this uh, lighting that you see here was in a way the abstract answer to written advertisements like on Times Square. And she had always had a fight with her husband, the photographer Alfred Stieglitz, who didn't want to advertise as Gary and his work. So as a joke and, and sort of to tease him a little bit, she put in, which is hardly visible in this uh, reproduction, into this painting of the American radio, she put in a huge red-lettered advertising for her husband's work. And this actually, if you stand in front of the painting, you can actually read Stieglitz. It says Stieglitz in big red letters. So she was teasing him because he never wanted to uh, do this sort of thing. But as you can perhaps imagine, the um, electricity industry and the lighting industry was absolutely delighted about this new development. And in fact, there, I found internal reports where uh, some managing director writes to another and says, you know, if this craze takes on, takes on we'll have wonderful business. In fact, lighting a skyscraper uh, at night will use up as much energy as lighting 15 gas stations, 20 college football fields, and six theaters to achieve the same effect of load on the network. He was absolutely pleased. And there's a whole flood of now uh, brochures, as you can imagine here, you know, everybody jumps on the bandwagon, of course, the terracotta company, you know, for reflecting surfaces. Here, the makers of floodlight uh, equipment, as you can see here, wonderful photographs, and often the Chicago Tribune was shown. And this one here is, uh, I love this, this is from a brochure of uh, 
General Electric, and you see the Chicago Tribune building, and it has a little bit of a sort of halo around it, but you don't see the Wrigley building, which of course was first. And this is the only point in Chicago where you could photograph the Chicago Tribune building without seeing the Wrigley building, which stands right behind it and is completely covered by this building. And of course, the reason was that this was lit by General Electric and the Wrigley building had been lit by Westinghouse, and so they did, you know, wanted to... Uh, uh, just make it vanish from the surface of the earth. So the interesting thing is that the lighting industry gets really uh, involved in trying to teach the architects that they have to adopt this and uh, uh, wants to sort of win their enthusiasm for this new element uh, in architecture. And there's a real sort of um, emphasis on the part of the lighting um, companies to build models and invite architects to see what you can do with your skyline of the city, how much you can change and improve the architecture at night, and they would change the colors and have architects sit in front and see how different buildings look more beautiful at night and would, would uh, have arrangements such as this one at the Edison Company in, New, in Patterson, New Jersey, where a whole skyline was up on stage and the architects and designers would sit here and see the skyline as a theatrical event. So urban theatricality uh, uh, was celebrated uh, at these moments in a, in a fantastic fashion. This is my favorite piece uh, by a man called uh, Lumber, who was the chief designer in Cleveland for General Electric at their University of Light, uh, their research center, and he built this enormous bu uh, model. Unfortunately, it's, uh, I couldn't find it anymore. I think they threw it out, unfortunately. But um, they started uh, campaigns to win the architects over and um, published brochures and had workshops and invited them. They wanted not only, of course, for their own purpose, there's this great movie they made, there is revenue in floodlighting. Get a load of it, you know, obviously, you know, double meaning there. And uh, uh, they uh, um, uh, invited architects every second weekend for training sessions and workshops. And the architects were at first rather hesitant to be educated, as it uh, says in an internal memo. But what is so important is that they managed to explain that if you light a building at night, the light usually comes from underneath, from across the street with floodlights, from even the uh, floor underneath. So it comes from under a different angle than sunlight. And you have to keep that in mind if you design architecture. And they said, you know, look at this wonderful uh, uh, um, portrait of Abraham Lincoln by Daniel Chester French here in, in, in Washington. If sunlight comes from above, the normal uh, lighting that you would expect, and I quote here from the publication of the lighting industry, neutral shadows bring out forcefulness, kindness, and lifelike appearance. However, if you now imagine light coming as you would uh, have it in a, in a nocturnal uh, arrangement from underneath, from above, from across the street, it would look entirely different. In fact, reverse shadows give the appearance of fear or startled surprise. And so, as a result, they said, you have to entirely rethink architecture. Even if you look at the capital, if you have a nice Corinthian capital and the light comes from above, it looks fantastic as we want it to. But if the light comes from underneath, it looks as spooky as Abraham Lincoln. And so the um, uh, lesson from this is we have to entirely uh, rethink architecture. And in fact, light became a form giver, suggesting that you have to eliminate classical ornament and um, rethink architecture and do something new about it. And so. Uh, the craze of floodlighting sweeps the United States. There are thousands and thousands of projects in the 1920s. I have a huge postcard collection you know, documenting this, as you can see here. And the nocturnal skylines really changed. It went all the way into the uh, Depression when no one else really had much opportunity to use enormous amounts of energy. And it was there, of course, to a certain degree, so it was used for night lighting, rather stark contrast with the poverty in the streets uh, below. And uh, the sort of theory about it that Raymond Hood and others move uh, forward, in fact, develops further. And they realized that, in fact, those setback skyscrapers that ha had been introduced in the early 1920s based on a 1916 law uh, in the United States, especially in New York, but uh, everywhere, really, those setback skyscrapers that had been introduced to bring more daylight into the city were actually perfect for the arrangement of night lighting because, as he pointed out, on the setbacks and terraces, these, uh, there are ideal places for the operation of the lights. So this is ideal in a way for an application of night lighting. 
And others picked up on this. In fact, uh, the great uh, architectural renderer, Hugh Ferris, published a book, The Metropolis of Tomorrow, with many of his drawings. And as some critics noticed, The Metropolis of Tomorrow was depicted entirely at night, strangely enough. And uh, almost every single one of these drawings, as you can see here, uh, showed the buildings at night with bright floodlights coming from underneath and the shadows all reversed and sh going upwards, but on these setback skyscrapers with their vertical lines and no more classical ornament. In fact, it worked beautifully. And in fact, the important critic Douglas Haskell said, this in a way is a new definition of our modernity. He says, this is modernism indeed. Thousands of years went by with their changes of style, but not until this century was there electric light, which far, far more than the familiar triad of steel, glass, and concrete has changed the basis of all architecture. This is us. The Europeans get the day. We get the night, he said. And of course, he was thinking of people like Corbusier and others who would talk about light, air, and sun as the elements of the new architecture of lots of glass and transparency. And he felt our American modernity was a nocturnal modernity and in a way something that gave us a, a sense of sort of visual identity in architecture and a very clearly stylistic identity as well. His judgment about the Europeans that they get the day and we get the night wasn't entirely correct. Of course, the Europeans had experimented with floodlighting, especially in London. There are many artists documenting the strange appearance of the skyline of London and the fear of uh, German aerial attacks. Of course, there were floodlights on the roofs of the buildings. And after the war, there were wonderful projects, particularly in Germany, of uh, young uh, progressive architects who had hoped that somehow uh, a new social order would arise after the disaster of the First World War and people like Vasily Lukart and Hans Scherun designed glowing cathedrals to a new religion and this new religion was really the religion of architecture that you would uh, um, uh, in fact experience in these glowing buildings. So they were very much interested in uh, nocturnal architecture as well. And of course there are many more projects of luminous uh, um, uh, mountaintops by people like Bruno Taut and others. It's quite uh, uh, wonderful of course and a uh, intense debate uh, about um, night lighting evolves in Germany as well. Um, again, it is uh, helpful to look at, at uh, movies uh, to understand a little bit of what people were interested in, what, what they were thinking about. And one of the most successful movies of that time, both in Germany and in the United States, is of course Metropolis. And if we look at Metropolis and think about the director for a moment, he had actually been to New York and to Times Square and had uh, stood there in 1924 and had described Times Square uh, very movingly saying, streets are an abyss of light full of moving, circling, dancing light, a statement of joyful life. And sky high above the cars and elevated trains, towers appear in blue and gold, white and purple, freed by floodlights from the darkness of the night. He described and he tried to capture this uh, impressive environment by actually exposing the uh, uh, camera twice, the film twice, as you can see here, and made this wonderful photograph in Times Square. And then he went home and his wife, following his description, wrote the novel of Metropolis, this rather dark view of the future of a uh, suppressed society with slave labor underground. And it is, in fact, this sort of rather negative vision of an ultra-capitalist skyscraper society uh, in the future is, of course, once again characterized by nocturnal views and by the enormous amount of floodlights and uh, advertising that cover the facades and are sort of, in a way, the trademark of the society that's ruled by the cruel John Frederson. And when the revolt breaks out underground among the uh, workers, of course, all of this visual uh, splendor goes, uh, runs amok and then uh, the city uh, is destroyed as a result. And this sort of visuality of the environment uh, of those uh, luminous facades and lights, as you can see here, is in a way the uh, uh, central element in giving that away. So rather dark view of the, towards the meaning of this um, phenomenon. And many German architects, of course, had a chance to travel to the United States um, at that um, uh, time. And uh, I think it's quite interesting to uh, see what they said, how they encountered the American uh, scene. So uh, just uh, two quick quotes. There's Martin Wagner, German uh, Berlin town planner, uh, who is in Times Square and he says, oh, there are so many advertisements, you can't even read them. They are overpowering each other and they have no real uh, um, sense anymore. There's uh, way too many and this should be really uh, hemmed in, as the, we know the Americans were trying to do. And then he travels to Chicago and he stands right here 
in front of the uh, Wrigley building, and he writes home to, for a newspaper article scolding his German colleagues who many of them thought this was just the most amazing thing, this brightly lit building there, the Wrigley building, and he says, and I quote here, he writes, when they, his German colleagues, when they stand in front of a skyscraper and admire the enormous boldness of the human spirit, they forget that the only reason why someone can afford to have his 50-story building illuminated by batteries of searchlights is because he found innumerable men and women who bought his chewing gum from him and now go about their daily business chewing chewing gum, he wrote. He was not very happy. And I think actually he, um, uh, Martin Wagner was probably influenced by Leon Trotsky, uh, the Russian revolutionary who had uh, just slightly before written um, in an article that uh, he thought that the chewing of chewing gum kept the American worker from engaging in class struggle as he, <laughs> as he was so distracted by the constant jaw movement, you know, so uh, that's somehow uh, the uh, German reaction. But uh, just to quickly uh, move on, of course, many realized that there was something interesting happening, that there was an advertising without words, and someone like Vasily Lukat, who had designed some of those great glass cathedrals in Germany, wrote admiringly, uh, at night the skyscrapers glow in blue and red, but he's also critical and says, they are looking more like Valhalla's dream castle than a functional building. Their female desire to be beautiful is so strong that the notion of business stops altogether and undermines their masculine power. So it was the light that sort of uh, emasculated the um, uh, skyscrapers, and he was rather critical about it. But nevertheless, Germany, of course, had its own debate about lighting, and interestingly enough, in a somewhat comparable way, people recognized that one had to integrate advertising into the architecture to make the appearance better and to improve the architecture as a result. This is Berlin, which had developed in the 1920s into the best-lit city in Europe. And of course, there were lots of complaints when luminous advertisings would cover the entire facade and in fact destroy the architecture. The wonderful quotes that one had to do something and hem it in and integrate it. And there are, in fact, attempts at doing that. Here writes Walter Rietzler, a famous critic, Advertising has to be an integral part of the facade, especially at night. It has to become part of the architecture. We call it then light architecture when it becomes a true element. And he, in fact, then goes into details very similar to what the Americans had found out. An architecture has to be bright and smooth. No cornices, shadow should interrupt the luminous flow. Architecture becomes insubstantial and immaterial. And you see here how the writing is brought into the spandrels between the horizontal uh, ribbon windows or beautifully illuminates this theater and its cubic forms or whole buildings are made out of glass blocks to glow uh, with their luminosity at night and advertising can be, at fixed, can be fixed at the outside. So all of this is happening in Germany and so there's a strong uh, feeling that light here too can form the new architecture, can contribute to a new uh, architectural design, but of course all of this ends very soon after when the National Socialists, when they come to power in 1933, immediately adopt light as a way to, uh, as a means to influence the masses and in a way uh, subdue them into submission, overwhelmed as many of them were when they had spectacles like the famous light cathedral that Albert Speer uh, created over uh, um, gatherings of party members and this sort of uh, 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 impressive technology helped Hitler, in fact, to manifest its power and get the German populace to uh, adopt his, uh, to a certain degree, his megalomaniac ideas. The original idea, one has to say, though, of shooting uh, light beams into the sky had been uh, taken from the Ford Pavilion. Ford, greatly admired by Hitler, by the way, um, uh, uh, had uh, done something very similar in 1933-34 at the Chicago World's Fair. But the whole megalomaniac dream of the Third Reich, as you all know, ends in the terrible catastrophe of the Second World War and the Holocaust and the utter destruction that results from it uh, in the uh, ruinous cities uh, in Europe, as you can see here on the right. So that, in a way, changes and halts to a certain degree uh, the use of uh, lights. And uh, nevertheless, many architects uh, from Germany immigrated to the United States and uh, rethought their approach to light and uh, managed, as Mies van der Rohe did with his fabulous Seagram building, to bring lighting ideas from Europe, the luminous box glowing from inside and from America, together in these wonderful lighting designs for the Seagram building that has special ceiling 
lightings, as you can see here, designed in such a way that you can see them as a pedestrian on the street at night dissolving the entire facade into a body of light. And many of those are being restored now. It was all switched off in 73 at the uh, energy crisis and is being restored now. And the building will again you, come to this great luminosity at some point in the near future. But I want to return, of course, to the present almost but with a little stop in the 1980s. And lighting, in fact, and advertising is still a great uh, theme in movies that look at the future. And of course, one of the films that adopted ideas from Metropolis is that great film Blade Runner, a wonderful uh, imaginative vision of Los Angeles in the year 2019. And as you saw in this opening uh, scene here, there are enormous uh, advertising screens on the facades of skyscrapers or, in fact, uh, if you uh, look at this scene here, on the side of moving um, uh, blimps that are both sort of surveillance apparatus and advertising the outer worlds to which the inhabitants of Los Angeles are called as their sort of retirement places. And here's Harrison Ford as the Blade Runner who has to track down uh, humanoids, uh, robots that have gone out of control. But what is interesting here, I think, is the vision that in the future we will have enormous advertising screens on the buildings and even in movable parts. And this in 1982 didn't really exist, but it's a very, very interesting vision that goes back to Metropolis and projects it into the future. And an architect such as Toyo Ito, who loved this film, in fact, did a wonderful uh, installation in this sculpture that he designed in a housing project in Tokyo. Um, in 1987, where this wind as he called it, uh, recalls that blimp in Blade Runner and the advertising. And this is, of course, one of the heroines in Blade Runner, into uh, the the one in uh, which Harrison falls falls uh, falls in love with Harrison, Harrison Ford falls in love with. So, uh, life imitating art and a recognition that there is an element of uh, future um, uh, um, uh, urban design very clearly recognizable. At the same time, attempts are made by Robert Stern and others to bring life back into Times Square, which had deteriorated, and as many of you, of course, know, in those uh, difficult years, in fact, was considered unsafe and immoral and not a very nice environment for tourists. And, and uh, uh, so uh, a, uh, a law is passed, which is quite interesting because it's the exact opposite of what had happened in the 1920s. Laws are passed that every building on Times Square has to have advertising and luminous advertising in the facade. A certain square footage has become mandatory and these are the visions that the architects draw up as you can see here of what Times Square might uh, look like and um, um, they show the sort of vividness of this vision and as you all know this is exactly of course what happened in the following years that an abundance of advertising was forced onto Times Square because it was a, a law that you had to buy this advertising space otherwise you couldn't uh, have uh, um, uh, real estate uh, bordering Times Square. And of course, there are wonderful reactions to it. Jenny Holzer does this uh, wonderful installation here on the Times Tower, protect me from what I want, for instance, playing with the notion of advertising or money creates taste and sort of responding to that and in a way also using the old simplified writing uh, that Wrigley had worked with versus the uh, um, overgrowth of uh, enormous size imagery uh, that is of course beginning at that uh, moment. But of course this is also the time when many theoreticians and critics rethink this approach and someone like Jean Baudrillard talks about advertising and it sounds like an echo of what we just saw uh, as a debate in the 1920s. He says advertising effaces the walls, effaces the streets, the facades and all the architecture, any support and any depth and feels that this is uh, this sort of liquidation of architecture is really a empty and inescapable form of seduction. Or uh, Paul Virilio, another critic, writes 10 years later, after the age of architecture sculpture, we are now in the time of cinematographic factitiousness. From now on, architecture is only a movie. The city is no longer a theater, but the cinema of city lights, he said. And uh, Guy Debord recalls that when he sort of thought of the society of the spectacle, uh, which has re evolved further and further, it really 
uh, in uh, 67 was 40 years old, so it started around 1927 when Metropolis came out and Sunrise was playing in Times Square, and he feels it has used those years effectively and has taken over. And indeed, looking at these images, of course, one might want to uh, believe in. And this brings us back, of course, to the quotes uh, I had started with in the very beginning, where architects now look at Times Square and say, you know, what has happened to our architecture? It's completely hidden behind advertising, and is there a way of integrating it? We don't understand if this is a billboard or if it's still architecture. Do we need to regulate it? All these questions are very important, and William Mitchell fearing that architecture might be swallowed whole by the advertising that it carries, by the moving images. And if I take you to Times Square just for a second, we will in fact see that while Times Square has become a much safer uh, place and a great tourist attraction and in many ways a commercial success, what the advertising has done to the architecture is of course absolutely atrocious. And it's, uh, as you can see here, it, has no it doesn't respond to the architecture. It's not integrated, it's just glued onto it. Often it covers the facades in a helter-skelter of, uh, of advertising screens and there's no relationship between what is depicted and the body it sits on. As you can see here very clearly, the fears that uh, had been expressed in the 1920s and then again in the 80s and 90s uh, still were absolutely justified, as you can see here, if we look around, uh, one bad example after another. And so really clearly there is a need to theorize and to think about and to uh, make use, as to a certain degree was done successfully in the 1920s, of this enormous force and the pressure of the market to improve our architecture. And I want to show you at the very end in my remaining um, uh, 10 minutes that I have, I wanted to show you just a few more examples of how people have sort of uh, responded to this. And again, I like to use movies as sort of a little glimpse into uh, the popular opinion, just a film that came out last year, which again is a film looking into the future, as did Metropolis and Blade Runner. And this one here, Children of Men, of course, shows us very clearly that the future, which is not a happy place, this is London, um, um, is dominated, the urban environment is dominated by advertising screens with moving images on them. And if you look at Oxford Street, you'll see the facades are entirely covered by these enormous advertising screens and uh, that uh, sort of cover up and destroy, if you like, uh, the architecture and in a way this scene just uh, for a moment shows you that clearly this is loaded with uh, again critique of this society which is uh, violent and menacing and out of control and so again advertising covering everything and there's just a terrorist attack uh, going on as you see here at the opening of the film clearly advertising once again adopts this role of characterizing this uh, society uh, and uh, this form of advertising is negative. But I want to show you a few positive examples, in fact, how architects have uh, responded to this challenge and have tried to integrate either advertising, moving imagery, or lighting into the facade. This one here, 42nd Street Studio by Platt Bayard Duvel uh, of 2002, has a computer program in which colorful lights are projected against these little uh, aluminum uh, blinds which still allow views outside and they shield the sun uh, away from the facade during daytime and at night. Different patterns of light play on the facade uh, according to the day of the week. They're busiest on Saturday when the street is busiest in front of it. And so is a, a sort of musical uh, a symphony of light uh, happening there in this facade that tries to do something different and more integrated and part of the architecture than the enormous media screens and advertising panels that you see around the corner. Or there are attempts recently, Doug Aitken, of course, this photo is in the catalog or something very similar, this idea of projecting image, uh, images of video screens. And of course, the idea of taking what just a few streets down uh, is the realm of advertising and returning it back to uh, art and to a narrative uh, cinema. And Doug Aitken did this wonderful uh, work, Sleepwalkers, on the lives of uh, New Yorkers in the city and their, uh, the rhythm with which they interact with the city. And of course, the integration into the courtyard of MoMA shows a very careful uh, selection of places for the moving images in this architecture. It's really integrated and very carefully selected. These are uh, 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 worked extremely well in this space, uh, of course. And I wanted to just as a comparison show you how important it is, even for advertising, to select carefully what in fact uh, you do. Even if you have brilliant advertising films such as the ones by um, one of my great heroes, Michel Gondry, who would uh, do wonderful advertising films for Levi's and for um, Polaroid, for instance, 
uh, where you place those advertisings and how they interacted with the architecture makes an enormous difference. If you have them in the calm environment, in the sort of square areas of uh, the interior courtyard of MoMA, it actually works. If it's just part, this is a brilliant advertising for Levi's jeans, if it's just part of the helter-skelter of images on Times Square, of course it doesn't work because there's too much competition going on. So what architects do to integrate advertising, moving imagery, uh, um, and uh, um, uh, just uh, enormous advertising screens and so on depends, of course, from the, on the context, on the architecture, on uh, their, uh, the contents of the um, uh, film itself and has to be very carefully studied and should be part of architectural design, I believe, in the future. And I'll just, uh, those of you who watch this film, which uh, I'll just let this uh, quickly run its course so you can come to this very humorous conclusion there. And... Um, uh, this happy man who just took revenge on his uh, uh, boss and here this uh, wonderful jeans advertising there Michel Gondry that great uh, a very very creative French uh, filmmaker and uh, advertising art director and so on these are examples of how important it is to, ch to choose the location wisely and to take the architecture into consideration. Sometimes these things already happen. Lehman Brothers building in, in New York City, for instance, has wonderful integration in the spandrels, just as the Germans in the 1920s suggested between the ribbon windows, digital screens and the video art is being uh, presented or another example which I really love, uh, Dilla Scofidio and Renfro, a, a New York-based uh, office of uh, architects, uh, did a great project for a uh, convention center in San Francisco where they suggested the screen on the building should really be specific. What is seen on that screen should be only seen here. It should have to do something with the building. It shouldn't just be any film or any advertising. And what they did was they created films that suggested to the outside passes by that this screen that moves around the building constantly is actually showing people what is happening in the building as if it is a magnifying glass telling us what is happening behind the glass facade and of course witty and uh, sarcastic as they are they mixed actual footage of what is happening in this convention center which is mostly boring of course with the footage that they created and so you watch this for a while and suddenly you see strange things happening there among those conventioneers and this is of course staged so they mix reality and uh, uh, they mix reality and fiction there in a very creative way but the way the screen moves over the facade is coordinated in such a way that it seems as you can see it's very slowly moving over the facade and the same speed uh, is the speed of course of that film that they took before and then uh, put onto this and so the events happening on the screen are really uh, suggestive to those passers-by as happening in this building which of course in most cases they aren't but uh, quite a wonderful idea of making this a very specific art that in fact the images have to do with the building uh, on uh, which they appear and that is something I think that needs to be studied much further and I think we need to reserve spaces for video art in uh, advertising uh, spaces and uh, in architecture related display uh, areas. So if we uh, just move on just a few last uh, images to show you what is possible today uh, we have now the technology thanks to LED lights and other uh, technological achievements to use much less energy to achieve much more. This is a department store in Seoul. The entire facade covered with LED lights behind glass discs that can be turned into a, a just colorful displays. As you can see here, abstract imagery once again as a department store or it can be very specific. They could show a movie there on the entire facade covering the entire building and that's something that is just being executed in Beijing in one of the great uh, sports stadia for uh, the uh, Olympics where in fact the entire facade of this cube uh, is, uh, consists of nothing but media screens. So you can either show sporting events that happen inside for those who didn't get a ticket or you can show movies such as High Noon or something on a gigantic screen on the outside uh, of this building and that of course changes our understanding of what architecture can do and of course gives us rather alarming thoughts following the lines of Bill Mitchell and, and Bob Campbell that I, I read to you before. Among my favorite examples are, the, are these two uh, with which I want to uh, end and uh, as you can see here a museum in the city of Graz in Austria where young lighting designers decided to go back to a much simpler form of uh, uh, visual imagery by suggesting that in fact uh, we'll choose pixels that are rather large we can do, of course, the high pixelation of uh, media screens that we all know, but if we go back to very simple 
kitchen neon lights. This is sort of what you find in your in many kitchens on the ceiling, you know, and uh, do individual uh, um, uh, computer programs for each of them. We can actually create very simple imagery that almost brings us back to the beginnings of film and photography, very grainy, if you like, and that, in a way, forces us to look or, as in this case of an enormous media screen, being looked at back by these uh, sort of very simple uh, films that are, uh, that are sort of produced in these media facades. And I think there is something rather interesting going on. Again, abstraction versus the uh, uh, visual power of uh, commerce-driven advertising. So we have to keep these spaces for artists uh, alive. And they, their most recent project that they showed at the Biennale in Venice two years ago was fueled by the idea of the, by understanding how the Seagram building works and how the night, uh, night sky above New York works and the idea of in fact using uh, all the lights in a building, the ceiling lights and the um, uh, table uh, lights for a new way of uh, architectural illumination that is very um, uh, dynamic and uh, changes uh, the architecture and as you can see here uh, they can. They say we don't have to exchange any lights, we'll just wire, rewire all the ceiling lights and the lights in the offices and can now create a new abstract art, a new architecture of the night if you like. And I'm not sure if that's really what we want in our skylines to happen quite frankly, you know, but uh, at least it gives us an idea of how architecture in its depth and in its uh, technological achievements can actually be integrated into a larger visual concept and this is uh, sort of uh, just one way of thinking about a controlled integration of light and architecture, the use of abstraction and formal patterns, and of course the idea of synesthesia, uh, the sort of interplay of formal patterns, a certain a sort of rhythmic uh, sequence and architectural forms, and that is what uh, these um, architects are suggesting. I, I want to show you in just a few seconds an interior view before I move on to my last uh, image, but the idea of, in fact, uh, integrating all the table lamps in these uh, uh, offices as well. Of course, this only works if nobody works late and keeps his light on, you know. <laughs> so this is an ideal scenario, but it's just a sort of, uh, you know, a thought experiment, nothing more. Uh, but nevertheless, I think quite interesting as sort of a final and the latest word in this uh, uh, interesting uh, um, sort of development of ideas that I've uh, tried to show you a few glimpses of over the last um, um, century. But uh, this is the, the sort of sequence I wanted you to see where they demonstrate how, in fact, the use of every uh, light element in a huge open office environment can be used uh, in these computer-generated uh, uh, flushes and patterns and waves of light uh, that they see as a new way of creating an architecture of the night. So I think you get the idea. And uh, I wanted to just come to my last uh, image. I'm uh, very excited by both the potential and the, the current debate. I think we still have not reached the, the intensity and the um, uh, of the debates that characterized the rise of architectural lighting in the 1920s and 1930s that I showed you, but the expectations that projection, display, light, movement and color could again be major forces in the development of architecture uh, is more alive today than it has been since the 1920s. The lure of a flexible and ephemeral architecture is stronger than it has been for a long time. I seriously wonder if this aspect of the incomplete modernist project is about to come closer to a realization if, in fact, the future dreamed about in the 1920s and 1930s is about to begin. Thank you very much.